Good morning. Um, last Sunday, Andy asked me if I'd preach, and I said, uh, "We'll get back to you." And uh, and I said, "Yeah, sure." The next day, I said, "Look, I haven't got anything on deck, uh, so if you've got anything you want me to." preach about, by all means, I'm open to suggestions. And he sent me a passage, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 11, and said, look, I'm thinking about just thinking uh, in church over the next little bit more about what is essentially suffering and how our suffering might help us to uh, be more in touch with the, the, the hardships of others. And I thought, that's, good. that's a good one. All right, that's a challenge. Because, uh, you know, how do you say anything meaningful about suffering in, a sermon, in one sermon? But I'll give it a go. i got to be honest with you, though. This might not be my best work, uh, because I prepared this sermon about suffering while on holiday this week. Um, so I wasn't really in touch with the subject matter. I wrote bits and pieces of it. Yeah, I didn't have a, the only suffering I had was I didn't have a laptop to write it. So, so just deep, deep suffering. And, um, I, uh, just got back to our room and wrote bits and pieces in between, you know, sleeping and eating and swimming. And so that might taint everything I'm about to say. And if that is the case, you know, bear with, bear with. Let's read the scripture together. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Uh, this translation is not... Um, it's, it's mostly from a recent translation that was done by a guy named David Bentley Hart. So it's not sort of a normal translation, but it, it's good. And just, just bear with, you know, go with me on this. It says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Anointed, or Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and a God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we might be able to comfort those in every affliction through the comfort with which we are ourselves comforted by God. Because just as the anointed sufferings, Christ's sufferings that is, abound in us, so also through the anointed, our comfort abounds. And if we suffer affliction, it is for the sake of your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for the sake of your comfort, which is at work in the endurance of those same sufferings that we too suffer. And our, uh, I've, I typed this out because I didn't have a laptop uh, later. And our hope is, uh, on your behalf, is firm. My bad. Uh, since we know that as you share in the sufferings, so also in the comfort. For I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, regarding the affliction that came our way in Asia. 
that we were placed under excessive pressure beyond our power of such a kind that we even despaired of living. But we held the sentence of death within ourselves so that we should be trustful, not of ourselves, but of God who raises the dead, who has rescued and will rescue us from so great a death, in whom we have hoped that he will rescue even yet. And you, by cooperating by your prayer on our behalf, in order that thanks might be given on our behalf, by many for the gracious gift bestowed on us by numerous persons. We've already heard um, this morning about all the kinds of suffering or, or various kinds of suffering by which we are surrounded. Uh, fires and lost livelihoods and lost children and, you know, I mean, sickness, uh, the list goes on. We are surrounded by suffering. In fact, this week on Monday, uh, back on January 27, it was uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. The day marks the liberation of the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp, the largest that was set up by the Nazis. Uh, This year, 2020, marks the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. It's difficult to try to imagine suffering on the scale that occurred at Auschwitz, right? And, you know, suffering isn't a competition. But few things could be named in the same breath as the Holocaust, you know, in terms of sheer brutality and injustice and inhumanity. The suffering that occurred in the Nazi concentration camps was of such a magnitude that it it, it changed global society. For example, the Declaration of Human Rights, which has influenced most national constitutions since 1948, when it was when it was drafted, uh, was drafted in response to the atrocities committed by the Nazis, or largely in response to it. You know, the Holocaust even changed theology. Everyone who believes in God must now contend with the existence of evil so great as that manifest by the Nazi regime. Right? All of us have to come to terms with that at some point. Many people, mainly uh, Jewish sort of scholars, theologians and thinkers, um, but others as well, have asked how anyone can continue to have any kind of faith in God after the Holocaust, what, what, what Jewish folks call Shoah. And for them, for these thinkers, there can exist no all-powerful, all-knowing and all-good God when such injustice and suffering is allowed to occur. And, you know, on one level, we, or at least I can, maybe you can, understand that conclusion. Faced with ovens designed for human bodies, it's hard to comprehend God's apparent silence, apparent silence. 
On another level, we can never, we can never understand this conclusion since none of us have experienced those kinds of conditions. Or I assume you haven't. Maybe you have. I don't know. Though we can perhaps sympathise with survivors and their descendants. It is, of course, easier for some people to sympathise than it is for others with this particular form of suffering or suffering in general. In 1938, Aboriginal leader William Cooper, of whom Jenny uh, spoke about a fortnight ago on Aboriginal Sunday, uh, and his colleagues in the Australian Aborigines League led a protest march and tried to hand a resolution to the German Consul General in Melbourne about Nazi treatment of Jews. The resolution protested the, quote, cruel persecution of Jews and called for its immediate end. It was the only known protest of its kind in the world at the time. The only one. It was after um, uh, my German's awful uh, Kristallnacht. Um, uh, uh, what's, what's the English version? The night of... Um, yeah, crystal night, yeah. When uh, describing all the broken glass because uh, Jewish businesses and homes were uh, vandalized, destroyed, uh, Jewish people were murdered on this one night in 1938 in Germany. This was, this is what they were immediately, this is what had happened immediately prior that they were protesting. But they were protesting persecution of Jews more generally. It was the only protest of its kind at the time. Anywhere in the world. The act of these Aboriginal folk protesting was so significant uh, for, for Jewish people that a tree was planted in honour of William Cooper in the Forest of Martyrs near Jerusalem. Why do you think, why do you think Aboriginal people would have been so willing to stand with Jews in their time of suffering? It's not rocket science, right? It's the result, yeah, it's the result of their own suffering, their own oppression. Being oppressed heightens one awareness, heightens one's awareness of the oppression of others. Suffering heightens one's awareness of the suffering of others. Which brings us to Paul's words in, in, in 2 Corinthians. Paul writes to a community, the Corinthians, with whom he had previously been in conflict. So in, read 1 Corinthians. If you know the book, you know that it's, it's not peaceful. Um, in that book, Paul had fiercely rebuked the Corinthian church for its immorality, and it's class divisions and, and various other issues. But he, uh, coming into Second Corinthians, because there's biblical scholars think there's a book in between. Oh, there was a letter written in between that we don't have, so you know we just have to. I don't know. It's like seeing Terminator One and Terminator Three, and then going, "What happened in Terminator Two? Um, and which is the best one? So uh, it's not, you know, I don't know. Uh, 
Yeah, it, it, it's hard to make sense of it, is my point. Just really badly made point. Anyway, 2 Corinthians begins with Paul having already been reconciled to the Corinthians. You know, so hallelujah for that, right? Um, to the point that he can, he can now openly share his sufferings with them. And so he does. He begins by talking about the sufferings of uh, himself and his his group, his party. Um, but he begins not by complaining about his sufferings, but by blessing God. Quote, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. He blesses God for comforting Paul and his party in their suffering. And he goes further. Paul claims that God comforts them in their afflictions so that they may comfort others with the same comfort that they had been given by God. Verse 4. This is significant. For Paul, his sufferings were not merely something to be endured, but something that could be a gift for others who are suffering. And that's a profound way of thinking about suffering. It assumes that there is some greater purpose to our suffering when it is experienced as a result of following Jesus. And and that's, it's a conviction that makes little sense in our age. When suffering is generally thought of as something to be avoided at all costs, even when suffering might result in some greater end. It's why I do almost zero exercise. I mean, truly, (laughs) just being honest with you all, um, Uh, suffering has no meaning for modern people. It's merely an inconvenience or a misfortune. And, and, you know, sometimes it is those things. Sometimes suffering is just an inconvenience or a misfortune. Because, you know, we, we've got to be careful that we don't invest all suffering with divine meaning. Okay? As if, um, say, the grief of losing loved ones, as we have heard in the news... Uh, overnight for some poor family in Sydney, as if that grief uh, was in some way, some cruel way for God to improve someone's character. Right? Like, that is not the meaning of suffering. That may happen as the result of your suffering, but God doesn't inflict suffering on you, uh, and Paul never says that uh, God, you know, inflicts suffering on you to do all the things that happen for him or what might happen for us. Okay, we need to be really careful in the way we talk about suffering because I have too many friends, um, and this is, I'm talking, this is a very big issue for people under 40, I tell you, um, that have been told that their, their cancer or a friend's cancer or some awful thing that's happened in their life, perhaps even a, a, some form of abuse, is oh, God did that in order to do this other thing? Okay, this is co- this caused people to leave the church because you end up with a God who is ultimately uh, a utilitarian, meaning God. Oh, there's a greater gain, so we'll just put th- people through the ringer uh, intentionally uh, in order to get some other goal. As if God doesn't really care about you, just sort of cares about the end goal. Okay, that is deeply toxic for many people. So we need to be really careful that we don't speak about suffering in that way, that we always speak about suffering as uh, something that God uses in order to achieve some end, but never causes to achieve some end. Does that make sense? Okay. 
But yet God can work in the midst of suffering, nonetheless. For Paul, suffering can be a source of comfort, even salvation, verse 6. But how does that even work? The bad news for us is that Paul doesn't really explain it very precisely. Uh, He doesn't sort of set out to provide a systematic account of suffering and God and how it all fits together. He doesn't do that. He's writing a pastoral letter to a particular community. And for them, he, he doesn't seek to explain it. He just seeks to turn their attention and our attention to Christ. He wants to remind us that Christ suffered and that his suffering, which led to the salvation of all, was eventually vindicated and comforted by God. In the resurrection, Christ's suffering is shown to have been undeserved and righteous and worthy of consolation and vindication by God. In the resurrection, God says, that person that you killed, he was doing my thing. Uh, yeah, he was with me. <laughs> He's my guy, right? He gets vindicated and, and consoled. And when we suffer as a result of our discipleship, as a result of our following Jesus, Paul says that we participate in Christ's suffering. Now, I don't, don't even ask me exactly how that works, what that means, because it's kind of a mystery and uh, I'm not just not that smart. But um, we, when we suffer and participate in Christ's suffering, Paul says that we participate as well in Christ's vindication and consolation by God who raises the dead. In other words, God comforts us as he comforted Jesus. Now, I should be clear at this point that not all of our suffering means participating in Christ's suffering. Not that God doesn't comfort us in all of our suffering, even when it's self-inflicted. But suffering because of any foolish or sinful decisions we make doesn't really constitute uh, participating in Christ's sufferings. You know, because Paul's suffering, his sufferings, are the result of his following Jesus. He's following Jesus and that is the, that's the reason for his sufferings. He didn't just happen to stub his toe or, you know, get real drunk and, I don't know, whatever, he, you know, like, this, this wasn't his, um, that wasn't the me, you know, the reason for his sufferings. He was following Jesus and he was persecuted as a result of that following. For him, participating in Christ's sufferings is about the sufferings we incur as a result of following of following Jesus. Paul suffers because he seeks to be like the one who suffered on the cross. When we do the same, we put ourselves in a position to be in touch with the suffering of others. Just as Paul says his sufferings are for the sake of the comfort of others, so too can our sufferings in Christ be for the sake of of another. 
the the the, the obvious implication of all this, and sort of the bad news, I guess, <laughs> is that it means all this means we must experience suffering. <laughs> we we can't avoid it as disciples. We must be willing to suffer as a result of our faith in Jesus. Any faith that seeks to avoid suffering will not be faith shaped by the cross, the centre of Christ's sufferings, but rather a faith shaped more by our fears and our desires for comfort and ease. But what kind of suffering must we experience? Because, you know, let's face it, the kind of world that Paul lived in uh, is not exactly Australia in 2020. Do we need to be persecuted for our faith to understand the sufferings of others and to be a comfort to them? Well, you know, actively seeking out persecution seems fairly strange and maybe even self-absorbed uh, and kind of contradictory, really. I mean, is, is it persecution um, if you've sought out persecution? Eh, not really. No, our sufferings have to be genuine, right? You can't go out and tell everyone that they're going to hell and then go, oh, I got persecuted because they tell you you're an idiot, right? Um, you know, try, I mean, try it on the street, right? Like, go out onto the highway, walk into one of the cafes and just announce to everyone, whatever, uh, and, and, and then, you know, do a certain foot, uh, rugby player move, uh, yeah, as, yeah, we're doing. <sighs> Where was I? That's not persecution, is my point. Uh, you, you can't say offensive things to people and then when they uh, arc up at you, you go, oh, persecution. That's not what that is. No, our, our sufferings have to be genuine. Um, though maybe not always to the extent of Paul's sufferings. I don't think we have to imagine that all of our suffering has to be crucifixion, right? Okay. Paul says he and his companion's sufferings were such that they despaired even of living, like a sentence of death that forced them to trust in God. You know, that's what he says in the text. It's difficult for us to even imagine such suffering in our context. Though for some, it is probably true. But for most of us, yeah, that's not our daily experience. But every time we sacrifice our own convenience and well-being for the sake of another person, we suffer righteously. We suffer as the result of our call to follow Jesus. Every time we give extravagantly to those in need, we potentially suffer righteously. Any time we suffer grief and anxiety and depression because we feel the pain of our broken world, we suffer out of righteous love. Anytime we choose the good over evil, the way of Christ over the way of death, and incur some cost as a result, we suffer righteously. The aim isn't to suffer. God does not wish us to suffer. The aim is simply, as it was for Paul, to be faithful to the way of Jesus. Now, all of this should make it problematic for Christians to hold certain popular views about issues that our society faces. I'm going to get on a hobby horse right now. Is that okay? To reject the refugee on the grounds that it will affect our way of life is a rejection of Paul's teaching on suffering. 
or suffering for the comfort of others, in fact. Surely we can sacrifice some of the good fortune of our standard of living, you know, because you were born into it accidentally, right? You, you, it's not by, I, I, you know, I wasn't, uh, born to Australia and lived a pretty wealthy, you know, life compared to most of the world because of anything that I did. Yeah? Surely we can sacrifice some of that good fortune for the sake of people fleeing unspeakable violence. To mistreat God's creation polluting and emitting and ravaging while that creation cries out in its suffering, Romans 8, is likewise a rejection of Paul's teaching. Surely we can sacrifice some of the things gained from our exploitation of the planet for the sake of the well-being of creation and of future generations. To neglect the poor, the sick, the prisoner, because it's inconvenient or, you know, because it's not our problem. It's, maybe it's even some other country. It's not in our backyard or something like that. Or because, and I, I hate this language. I just want to apologize before I use it. But, uh, you know, um, to not help those people because doll bludgers and moochers and criminals apparently don't deserve understanding and compassion <laughs> is a rejection of Paul's teaching. A- and actually... A direct contradiction of Christ's commands. Surely we can sacrifice some of our time and resources for the sake of those in whom Christ told us we would find him. Matthew 25, right? When God became a human, incarnated as the person Jesus, we received the gift of a mediator between us and God. One who understands our suffering. In his suffering, we receive our comfort. To follow Jesus then, means being willing to participate in Christ's suffering. And to let that be a comfort to others that suffer. We are, like Christ, to be a people of compassion. Do you know what that word means? It literally means to suffer together. Passion uh, being, uh, the root word passion means suffer. The passion of the Christ doesn't mean Christ was passionate about something. I mean, that's true. But um, but that Christ suffered, the, the suffering of the Christ, right? Compassion, just like communities, you know, unity together, which is sort of obvious, but... Um, uh, compassion is suffering together. We are called to be a people who suffer together with others. Perhaps one of the greatest aspects of our witness to the world will be our ability to suffer with one another. To be a community where no one has to suffer alone. And where we can always find comfort because of the sufferings that others have endured, which bloom into understanding. And because those others now suffer along with us in our suffering. How do you suffer? And how does, who does that put you in touch with? If you're like me, 
and you live live with um, anxiety and depression, maybe we should get together. <laughs> maybe that's what we should do so that we don't have to do that alone. If you live with sickness or, you know, uh, some ailment, who does that put you in touch with? How can you suffer together? By being that kind of community, our compassion, our suffering with, extends beyond our boundaries into the wider world. We don't just show compassion to one another. This is not a club. This is God's mission to the world. That's what you are. The church is God's vehicle for God's mission. And we need to be constantly thinking about what is our witness to the wider world? Who are we to the wider world? Our suffering should mean compassion for the wider world. The early Christian community was known in part because they suffered with the poor and the sick and the outcasts. They ministered to like lepers when everyone else was just, just, why don't you just go to the edge of town and just live there in a little commune? That's the best we can do for you. And the Christians went, eh, well, we can do better than that. The Christians suffered with those that were deemed untouchable in ancient Roman society. They welcomed them and they embraced them. To the point that Roman emperors felt like they needed to start competing with the Christians about showing mercy to outcasts. So who is the untouchable in our context and how do we suffer with them? How do we suffer with them? May we be well attuned to the suffering of others. And may this community and others like it who serve the Lord Jesus be a balm for the world's suffering, mourning with those who mourn and suffering with those who suffer until the time when God finally sets all things right. Amen.